How does a church budget ethically? Or is poverty a theological issue? Or is it simply something that will always be with us? Today on the podcast here at ToddLittleton.net, home of Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian, we're reprising an interview done last summer with Ryan Abernathy, who works for the Oklahoma Regional Food Bank and is pastor at West Metro Community Church. If those questions intrigue you or interest you, stick around and listen. This is Todd Littleton for The Edge of the Inside with Thoughts from the Edge. Today on the podcast, we're glad to welcome Ryan Abernathy. Ryan is a pastor in Oklahoma City, and he also works at the Regional Food Bank of Oklahoma. Ryan recently wrote a couple of articles. We're going to talk to him about it. So listen in. My guest today is Ryan Abernathy. And, uh, Glad to be here, Ryan, Todd. Thanks welcome the to the podcast. Yeah. Ryan and I have met a, a number of years ago, and uh, we're both local to the metro Oklahoma City area. We both pastor, and while we haven't had a lot of regular, like, face-to-face interactions, although we're this close, we have a lot of interfacing because we share a common interest. A number of years ago, one of our staff members was doing a seminary extension with Ryan uh, over in Shawnee. And through that friendship, our church made a connection with First Church Bethany, where Ryan was at the time. And we learned about a ministry they had. And Ryan's going to uh, have an opportunity to kind of share a little bit about that. But the reason to have Ryan on the podcast is, is he wrote a two-piece series for Marty Duran's blog, Kingdom in the Midst. And in it, he outlined some myths uh, related to poverty. And as a pastor who has uh, really believed that the church ought to participate in meeting those particular kinds of needs, we all hear a number of myths that get thrown at us, uh, some statistics, some accusations, that sort of thing. Ryan did a fantastic job of uh, addressing some of those, responding to those, created a lot of questions for me and uh, a, a lot of opportunities really to clarify that. So that's one reason I want to have Ryan on the podcast. For our folks at Snow Hill who are, will listen to this, this is the guy. If you hear us advertise, we're going to go feed the homeless on Monday night, the fourth Monday night of the month. You want to blame somebody, you blame this guy because he <laughs> has as much to do with that as anybody. So, Ryan, before we kind of get into a lot of that, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, Todd. I, I uh, pastor a church in Yukon, Oklahoma called West Metro Community Church. It's a church that I planted about 11 years ago. Uh, the, the current uh, formation is actually the combination of the merger of two churches together. Uh, we are an elder-led church. Love, absolutely love working with uh, an amazing group of guys and ladies uh, in doing the ministry there. Uh, very focused on uh, reaching out uh, to people who've been very turned off of church. Uh, and doing a lot of justice and mercy ministries uh, through that congregation. So I'm a bivocational pastor. Uh, I work full-time as the Senior Director for Programs and Nutrition for the Regional Food Bank of Oklahoma. I've been here for a little over four years now to help the hungry and the hurting uh, and getting a chance to mix, uh, really truthfully, ministry every single day uh, with my job, which is pretty awesome. No doubt. And I should add real quickly, Ryan and I share an alma mater. We both went to Oklahoma Baptist University, and recently 
Ryan was uh, uh, profiled as an uh, alumni of excellence. Did I get that yeah, right? Yeah, I think so. Something like that, man. It's uh... Yeah, don't be modest now. That's quite an achievement. Most yeah. of those guys are like 10 or 15 years older than you who uh, get that. So you're most, of are, most, anyway. of are lot, most of them are a lot more important as a matter of fact. It's all a matter of perspective. Uh, so Ryan, thanks, Ryan let's uh, um, let's – Let's get into this piece, and along the way, if you want to kind of interject some anecdotal things um, maybe related to what prompted you all to begin that uh, ministry at First Baptist that is still going on today, just throw that in there. But what I, what I like to do is, is when Marty entered your post, here's something he wrote. Political campaigns contain promises of welfare reform and cleaning up the system, quote, we need to make sure taxpayer money isn't going to waste because heaven knows it would be an abomination to feed kids who never asked to be born, whose mothers would be would have been castigated had they chosen abortion rather than life. Now, you know, Marty, he really can be pointed and and he did a really good job. But what he played up is, is and we're since we're approaching a, a really election cycle, now the 15th candidate just announced today on the Republican yeah. side of the, uh, of the parade, welfare reform always pops up. And when it does, a lot of these uh, interesting arguments uh, appear, most notably uh, how people are gaming the system. So you actually – Divide your uh, article up into two parts, and the first is an astounding uh, piece of information, and you address seniors. So tell us a little bit about the reality of how seniors figure into, uh, in, whether you want to focus on the SNAP program or what you, what you do and part of your work there, but tell us, how, tell us some things that people would not uh, expect. Oh, man. I mean, I think the biggest thing for me was just realizing the number of senior adults who are outliving their retirement. Uh, and that's something that I didn't even know the food bank. Uh, I started in the, as the senior feeding coordinator, which means I was working primarily uh, with senior housing authorities and senior centers that are feeding uh, senior adults uh, generally one to two meals a week or providing them a place to live with meals attached or the kitchenette attached or whatever. And I would talk to these folks, and I'm talking about people a lot of times that are in their 70s and 80s and approaching, in some cases, you know, their late 80s. They didn't expect to live that long. Um, you know, the medical advancements in the United States uh, that have taken place over the last, you know, 15 to 20 years that have extended life, uh, they've hit some of these folks that they really truthfully expected to, you know, to have been passed on by now, and they've outlived their retirements, they've outlived their pensions, uh, and now they're like, well, my life is still going on, but my financial resources uh, are beginning to dwindle. And, you know, we're not talking about how their lives were going to be spent, how they were going to spend their golden years uh, on the backs of whom this country was built, the greatest generation, the people who fought World War II, the people who fought in Korea. Uh, and now, you know, they're looking around going, we're, we're out of money, and all I've really got left is – Social Security, and that's not enough to really truthfully be uh, about these positions of the door greeter. Uh, and I'll often hear people go, oh, you know, I can go up and be a greeter at Walmart or whatever. But the truth of the matter is a lot of people that are working those jobs are senior adults in their late 70s, early 80s, and they're not working there for something to do, man. Uh, they need the income uh, because otherwise baby boomer generation continues to retire 
uh, and continues to pull into the Social Security pool, uh, that is going to become more of an issue rather than less of an issue in the coming in the coming years. Uh, so a lot of times when I was out at senior sites, I'm talking to these people and they you know we're, we're distributing uh, some non-perishables, a little bit of protein, uh, generally turkey or ham, uh, some fro- some uh, fresh vegetables and some bread. And I mean, I'm looking at folks going, this is going to get me through the end of the month. Uh, because they're going to depend on that additional food resource because they've already exhausted their own personal resources, and all they really got left to spend money on is medicine, and they're going to have to make a choice between food and medication. Uh, and that's an issue we see more and more security based on rises in food costs or medication costs. Uh, it is a spiraling problem in our country. Well, and, and there you had a third ingredient, I think, that um, I, I would imagine if you – have been in a situation where there's senior adults in your church or in a church you've been involved with, they also um, have uh, the situation where their uh, utility costs increase. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the one nobody ever thinks of. I mean, you know, the ga- the, uh, the, the rise in gas prices has been great for Oklahoma, uh, but it's been terrible for people who live on a fixed income, and I, I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head, uh, where they're asking people to volunteer, you know, to pay a little extra to be able to help somebody out. And those, those programs are great, but, man, they, they have no way of dealing with, with the need. And, uh, you know, the rising costs of heating, of heating and cooling a home, uh, a lot of times senior adults living in a home that's not well insulated and they can't afford to improve it. They have an inefficient heating or cooling system because it's 30 years old and they don't, have a, they don't have the ability to fix it. I mean, these are all issues that continue to rise up. Yes. Let's chase an interesting little argument that comes out of that for just a second. Often when you mention the phrase fixed income, I've heard, believe it or not, folks in their 30s, 40s, 50s, even still in their 60s who respond, well, well, I'm on a fixed income. Uh, the difference is in, in those decades, unless you actually have a chronic illness, say you're diabetic, uh, say you have hypertension, uh, you have something that is regularly maintained by medication. But frankly, most 30, 40s, and 50-year-olds aren't really there yet. So if they respond well, I have fixed income, I haven't had a raise in forever, and I still have rising gas costs, costs, and I have rising utility costs. It is a little bit different when you're talking about a senior who has reached the end of their retirement precisely because you said because they've actually outlived what they ever planned to live. And then they've actually reduced their budget because, according to your statistics, uh, their their net income would be nine hundred and seventy three dollars. That's kind of the average, and their SNAP assistance is one hundred and thirteen dollars a month, putting them at barely over thirteen thousand right. dollars a year. Now that's that's below the level of poverty. That's a different sort of fixed income scenario than than say a thirty or forty something making thirty five to fifty thousand dollars who could pare back some of their uh, excesses. You can't pare back excesses on $1,086 a month. Right, yeah, and that $973 is a hard cap for a, for a single person. 
So $974, you're off the program and you lose the $113. I mean, I'll give you a real life example. Before I started working at the food bank, uh, I was working for a home improvement company and we employed primarily senior adults uh, in different Sam's Club warehouses to food bank before I really began to understand how a lot of this stuff worked. And he called me one day frantic. Uh, and said, I need you to come out here right now. I'm thinking, man, you know, what in the world's going on? I go out there, and he, he is standing out there by our deal, and he has all of his gear together, and he goes, I quit. I'm like, what do you mean you quit? He goes, I quit. If I work another hour this month, I will lose my benefits, and I'll lose my home. And I'm like, what do you mean? He, he said, I'm at my income cap, and my the person that, that handles all my all my benefits said, that if I make another dollar this month, that my wife and I will be kicked out of our apartment at the end of the month. Wow. So uh, plus bonuses for sales. Uh, he had the potential to doing what he was doing to make about 300 to $400 a week, and he was like, I can't do it. I can't make the numbers work. So I mean, that's a real-life example of a guy who was, you know, he was, Ben was almost 80. He was 78 years old, still working Wife in bad shape. Wife couldn't work, and it was better for him to not work, to quit a job, uh, than it to, because he would be kicked out of his housing. Oh my goodness! And and so here's the here's the another angle that you raise uh, because so not only are we, are we talking about they've lived beyond the uh, uh, expectations of their retirement and what it would provide for them, now they found themselves. Uh, limited in what they can earn to get the assistance because that dollar more that they earn is a loss in what's really keeping them where they can actually sustain. We're not talking thrive. We're talking sustenance because here's a line you, you, uh, you used. You said the consequence is they eat less, and eat less does not mean they can. It means less than they should. So now we're into some nutritional issues. Right. Right, yeah, and I and I think that's the thing that was probably the most surprising and most troubling to me as I began to do, you know, kind of my research when I started here, uh, is you know, senior adults are in a lot of ways as far as the way their bodies function, as far as needing nutrients, they they need a nutrient balance. Now, and it's not like an infant or like a like a child, but in order to be able to maintain just basic information that's out there, and when they lack these types of things, they tend to you know, they get sicker more often. Uh, they're more susceptible uh, to debilitating diseases, particularly Alzheimer's. There have been a couple of different studies, and I cited one of them in the article uh, about the connection between poor nutrition and uh, the onset, early onset of dementia or the faster progression of dementia. So if you stop and think about it, what is the cheaply processed with large amounts of preserves in it and high in carbohydrates and low in all of these essential vitamins and nutrients, A, B, D, C, because it costs a lot to get protein. Um, so you would ha- you have these instances where people are like, well, this is what I've got to survive on. And then the opportunity to get a hold of produce is further compounded by the fact that there a lot of senior adults are living where it's very difficult, particularly in Oklahoma, to be able to get to a store that sells produce and then to be able to transport it home because of the additional expense of gasoline, auto insurance, car payment, all that type of stuff. Plus, you know, a lot of senior adults, they become homebound. They're not able to drive anymore. They don't have the faculties, the, ability, the vision or whatever to be able uh, to, to drive. We had an incident when we uh, launched a mobile pantry in Lawton 
the, the second time we went down there is as, as I was phasing out of the program, but I was very excited to get these launched. And we were at this one housing authority uh, in Lawton. And there was a guy that, uh, and we're, we were finished up with the distribution for the day, and we're buttoning up and getting ready to go to the next location. And there's this little commotion over by the door. And here comes this, this blind gentleman with his buddy who had led him through the line. And, man, he is giving his buddy what for. I mean, he is just all up in him. You know, I can't believe I didn't get my apples. I want my apples. So I look at the truck driver. like, man, toss me a thing of apples. I'm going to get this dude taken care of. And I walk over to him and say, hey, whoa, whoa, calm down, man. I got your apples right here. And he's yelling at his guys. Man, I can't believe you didn't get, me, get my apples. He forgot my apples. I'm like, I got your apples. And I said, man, I said, you must really like apples. And he goes, I had had an apple in four years. Wow. And I was like, why not? And he goes, well, I'm blind. And I was like, is there a, is there a law in Lawton that blind do was he was basically getting the majority of his food from what he could pay somebody else to go get him from the store or what he could safely be able to walk to that was in range of the housing authority, which was no fresh produce whatsoever. And so the only fresh produce he was able to access was through what we were able to bring with us. Uh, I'd never thought about that before. Man, how many senior adults are not able to get out and go and get that kind of stuff for themselves? Right. And, and uh, you know, you, you give some great segues. I got to tell you, you're really good interview. You give some great segues because – when you were referencing the gentleman um, who uh, worked for you, who was 78, and you mentioned that he was making at the time, so now we're talking four-plus years ago, he was making a little over $10 an hour, which you know is above minimum wage. Well, that's another one of our issues that we're facing in our country. That will be an election issue about how are we going to take care of uh, minimum wage and the increases oh, yeah. already have the back and forth be- because um, I think I saw a photograph of San Francisco a week or two on Facebook and I'm not sure what the illusion was to because I didn't click over and read the story but someone was alleging that this is the consequence of higher minimum wage and by implication what it seemed to be implying was unemployment increased because companies had to increase their wage wages, thereby limiting the number of employees. And so, you know, that's the excuse that gets used. And yet those same people who want to fight that are sure interested in how inflation has affected their dollar. Oh, yeah. Because they're not actually stuck on the minimum wage. In other words, they've, they've been in a vocation or whatever where they've got those COLA raises every year, those small percentages, even as they are. They've still got those small percentages. Minimum wage earners do not get COLA. Right. They, they don't. They, it's, it's a flat. Here's what you're getting. If they get anything, it's a performative-based. Or if they are with someone long enough, they might get step increases as a consequence of some really elaborate uh, uh, schema, uh, like even with the city of Tuttle, for instance. Uh, but but uh, that's a, a, a volatile discussion when you start talking about, you know, including minimum wage as a poverty issue. Because if I remember right in your stats, I'm going to look it up here, but I want to say that uh, at the current minimum wage, you had a figure – in your article, uh, that if someone were on the minimum wage, what they would make 
per year. That's fifteen thousand and eighty dollars before taxes. Fifteen thousand and eighty dollars before taxes. Yeah, that's before taxes. So if we're going to net taxes. out, we're still a single person netted out, still under poverty. Oh yeah, by a lot. So minimum wage is actually a resignation that we need a poverty class. <laughs> I didn't say. Mi- Minimum. If you go and look at the the history of minimum wage and what it was intended to do, uh, it was basically a a move by the federal government to force businesses to be able to pay people enough to be able to live on. And uh, as a, it was initially instituted as a uh, a poverty prevention technique, and it just it's never kept pace with the rate of inflation inside the United States. And now it is used, like you said, as a club to say, well, if we pay people more than this, uh, and it, it leads to situations like we have in Oklahoma. Oklahoma is fifth in the nation in underemployment. That means that there are only four other states that have lower wages than us. Uh, and people will say, well, you know, if they really, you know, if they work really hard, they can get a better job, or if they go to school, or all these different things. And I actually got, in, got into a conversation with a guy who's in the oil field. It was talking to me about, well, you know, there's jobs out here. People just aren't willing to do hard work. And my response to him was, okay, you're right. There are probably some able-bodied people who could go out and do oil-filled work and make six figures working as a roughneck out on an oil oil derrick. What about the single mom whose husband left her, who's five foot one, 120 pounds, soaking wet? Do you think she has a future in the oil field? (laughs) You know, what about the or you know, what about the single dad whose wife ran off with the work in the oil field? What are his five and seven year old supposed to do while dad's not home? Well, I'll tell you what they're gonna do. DHS is gonna come take him away because that's abandonment. Uh, he didn't have an answer for that, and I don't either. But I think the thing that the, the thing for me as a pastor that I look at, and I use this, ex- this example when I talk with a lot of people who say they're Christians but don't want to discuss minimum wage increases as a justice issue. Uh, We have an example right here in our own state of a company that's decided to run their organization by biblical principles, Uh, and that's Hobby Lobby and the Greens. Uh, David Green and his family have decided they will take less and pay their employees more, and it is a biblical justice issue for him. Uh, and I know, you know, he, he gets a lot of, you know, a lot of accolades because the man honors his biblical principles across the board, including what he pays people. And I think that he should be an example to people who say that they are followers of Jesus and business owners, that if you are in business and you believe that God has led, given you that business as a means to employ people, that you should take care of the people that you employ. And he has decided to do that. Uh, you know, to someone who is not a who is not a follower of Christ, I would point to Costco and their employee employee retention because they choose to pay their employees so much better, and they do that by having their top level executives take less in compensation. I mean, I'm sorry, man, I'm just a simple dude, but I think that if I can live on six million, I can probably five cars instead of four. Uh, I, you know, I may have to forego the trip to Switzerland every year and go every other year, but come on. And, you know, the response to that is, well, people deserve to, you know, to be able to have as much money as they want. Scripturally, that's not true. Scripturally, we are given our financial resources. We see that as a gift from God, and we are to be stewards. And part of stewarding is giving away what God has given us. 
you know, another dude gets a lot of flack is Rick Warren. You know, Rick Warren gets a ton of flack about, you know, how much money he makes, all this different stuff. Dude's living off 10% of his income. And I know that's a whole lot more money than I make, but how can you, how can you get on to a dude that's those examples in favor of our current situation? Oh, there's no doubt. In fact, I, I would probably make an argument that what we witness in this whole minimum wage argument is the reality that late-stage capitalism requires a cheap labor class. So historically, if you look back at the various ethnic groups that served that role, they were the inexpensive labor, the cheap labor. Uh, sometimes we went offshore, think Haiti. We could um, now look at our own country, and minimum wages actually serve to provide cheap labor so that you get that uh, incredibly ascending curve in terms of where the money is, uh, shows up in our, across our culture. So the old famed 1% versus the 99%. And, but, you know, you know what happens? The minute you start talking about capitalism being critical, some people who read their Bibles think it is capitalist intensive. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, as a, as a pastor, uh, you know, I find that troubling because I think the example we have in the New Testament is that the New Testament believers had all their goods in common. Uh, and I think a lot of times the argument will get, well, yeah, that, well, that's for within the church. But the church was encouraged uh, to do good across all sectors of society, uh, both love, both economic and you know, personal investment that the church was known and famed for. I mean, if you go and look at uh, you know, the, the time of the plague and the Black Death, uh, one of the reasons why Christians gained such power inside of the empire was because they were the ones who were nursing and taking care of poor. Uh, if you go back and look at that famed Baptist institution of Sunday school, Sunday school started as a poverty alleviation method. Uh, the, the church basically had the stroke to be able to say nobody works on Sunday, uh, and the and the uh, the founder of Sunday school saw you know all these these poor kids and these in these uh, if I remember my history correctly these English uh, industrial towns and basically saying you know what these kids need to be going to school well the church uh, and so you know when a lot of these you know a lot of our Baptist brethren gather on Sunday mornings uh, to talk bad about people who are poor uh, they are doing that uh, in a in an organization that was founded as a poverty alleviation method but nobody wants to talk about that. Well, and see, again, you provide just an, a great segue because that's what we hear. It's their fault. It's them. And you know they're just gaming the system. But you've got some incredible statistics about the um, abuse of the SNAP program. We'll just take one program, but the SNAP program, because that's one, frankly, most of us are familiar with. Most of us are familiar with the, the, the that's the new shorthand for food stamp. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so if we're talking about if we're talking about food stamps, um, and in that particular case, you you have the statistics here. I've, I've got it. According to the USDA, the fraud rate on food stamps is one point three percent, or one penny on every dollar. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna venture a guess. That there are. I'm gonna say it. There are Christian people. In your congregation and mine and across the country 
who cheat the federal government on their taxes more than a penny on the dollar. <laughs> uh, I would I would imagine so, and I would also imagine that there are uh, businessmen making billions of dollars uh, in the United States who cheat the government a lot of money with shady tax deductions and things like that. Um, and you know, and some of them are caught, and they should be. They should be caught, and in the same way, snap sheets should be caught. People who are selling their benefits and who are trafficking in food stamps uh, should be caught and should be prosecuted. But the USDA identified this problem in the 80s, uh, and they've worked for 30-plus years, 30-plus years to clean the program up. It is one of the few government programs that is the very model of efficiency. Uh, it does exactly what is intended to do, and it really, really does it well. And to be really honest with you, I was a skeptic when I started here. Uh, I, I, I did not have necessarily the harsh opinions that some of my brethren have, but I also thought that food stamps, you know, were something that was highly abused and that kind of stuff. And I'm defeating Wisconsin now, uh, which as a statewide hunger relief coalition. Uh, but man, David, I went to a couple of presentations he did, and he blew my mind with the statistics about how food stamps and how SNAP works and how efficient it is. Um, and so now when I'm in line behind somebody that's using, you know, an EBT, it's an electronic benefits card, because they don't do the stamps anymore. They do something that looks more akin to a credit card, people to be able to pay for stuff. Uh, I know that more than likely the person who's in line in front of me, if they're not a child or not a senior adult, it's probably somebody who is busting their butt to make a living and is having to, to rely on food stamps for a short period of time to be able to make up a gap. Because most people aren't, they're not on food stamps for forever, man. Uh, the incredibly offensive terminology that I'm not even going to use that wrong, uh, in the 80s, uh, to define people who were on, uh, SNAP on food stamps, on welfare, uh, is not only not the case, uh, but it is really truthfully, it is a, it is a racist portrait, um, that needs to be wiped from our lexicon, uh, because that is not true of people who are on SNAP today. It's just not. I mean, the statistics are absolutely staggering. Uh, about the, uh, the the type of person who is now on food stamps. Well, did, did I read correctly? You said the average person is on food stamps for nine months. Yeah, that's a, that's according to Bread for the World, uh, which is a Christian poverty relief organization. Uh, that was the best statistic that I could find. Uh, I have seen in presentations, uh, and I didn't want I didn't put it in here because I couldn't footnote it, and I wanted to be able to footnote it because typically that's the thing you hear is, well, two years. Uh, and that's not people generationally being on food stamps and, mm -hmm. and, you know, people saying, well, you know, they're just waiting until they turn 18 and go down and sign up for their benefit card. That's not the case. Uh, and, and really, truthfully, if there's someone that is in that situation, they've been living in a dire situation for a very, very, very long time. Well, I don't want to trail off too much. I'm going to say, <coughs> pardon me, that if you find someone who has been on food stamps or in a program, for an enduring period of time, part of that is generative from the system in which they actually find themselves. Right. In other words, it has become a socialized sort of way of looking at the world. And, and so while I know that we like to hold every individual responsible for their decisions, if I grow up seeing that this is how you get along in the world, how you make it, how you have a family, how you provide for that family, and, and, and it's learned or it's caught more than it is, how can I be deceptive, how can I be lazy? We just, we, 
evangelical Christians aren't really good with system problems. We, we really are hard on individual problems. We're not really good about system problems. No, and I think a lot of times because that's something that we don't understand. We don't, you know, in, in the, particularly in the, the Anglo church, we don't deal with generational sin very much. In fact, a lot of times I think we kind of dismiss that. Uh, a lot of my brothers and sisters that are in our African-American dominated congregations, uh, they can talk to you about generational sin and generational curses. My buddy Mike Keebone, that's the deal when he goes and speaks, is the idea of being a curse breaker, being somebody who breaks the curse, breaks the cycle of this familial sin. Uh, and poverty a lot of times is the result of a series of generational sin, generational choices that have been made that are outside the control of the child or the family member. Um, and it does stem a lot of times from poor choices that were made, but sometimes it stems from poor choices that were foisted upon them by people outside of their control. Um, the Atlantic did a brilliant article last fall uh, on what they called the, the title of the article was literally the case for reparations. Mm -hmm. And it was this, and you may have seen it, man, because I think you probably read that pretty regularly like I do. Uh, it was talking about uh, the the reason why that reparation should still be a consideration for former slaves is because of the housing practices that exist in a lot of made committed by someone outside of the community that that literally affects people that were born in 2015. I mean, that's crazy. But you know, there's a reason why Scripture tells us to think that sins will be visited to the fourth, fifth, sixth, even seventh generation. Uh, sin. Uh, Sin kills, and it, it, is, it has slaughtered poor people in America for generations. Yes, you, you are correct. So let's, let's do two things with the time we have left. Because if this is really something we need to pay attention to, then there are a couple of things out there that I think are important for our listeners to note. First of all, recently there's been an op-ed piece, uh, I believe it was in Time Magazine, suggesting the end of tax-exempt status for churches. Now, in the course of our conversation, you have actually pointed out to periods of time and illustrations where the church actually was instrumental in the community uh, to help with poverty and illiteracy. Uh, you referenced the Christians who actually uh, risked their own uh, welfare to go in during times of plague. And, and so the argument or the premise in the piece was that the church no longer provides uh, something of value for its community, which actually, according to the author, lay at the root of why the church received tax-exempt status, because nobody else was doing it. But we entered an era, probably post-World War II, and the consequence of kind of a, a rising income and a cloister effect, plus a little popularity of a particular eschatological position, that the church shouldn't be involved in those things. But repeatedly in your piece, you have inserted scripture over and again, pointing out that actually in a shorthand sort of way, we could say it this way. God is on the side of the poor and the needy. 
So let's talk about the church and the church's role in these sorts of things and and maybe some suggestions you have, maybe some illustrations that you could um, uh, use as maybe an instigator or catalyst for someone who might be listening to say, I never thought about that in my church. What, what, what are some things that you could kind of help connect that dot? Because when it comes down to it, in the last little bit we have, you've repeatedly made reference to the scripture. You've made reference to living a particular sort of way that's been outlined by an understanding of the Bible and what God has designed for people, for human beings together. And so the collective church gets together. Okay, so Ryan, give, it, give us some... Give us some illustrations. How should the church, how could the church be uh, directly involved, contributing to their communities? I think there's there's several things that are involved here. I think uh, one of them is uh, to begin to befriend the poor. Uh, So many of our churches uh, are middle class or upper middle class enclaves where people who uh, struggle financially do not feel incredibly welcome. Uh, and so I think in a lot of cases, instead of fleeing areas where blight has begun to take root, instead we should sink down deeper roots and begin to open our doors and say, we welcome you here. And not saying we welcome you here so that we can feel sorry for you and feel pity on you, but we welcome you here because this is a place of refuge and a place of safety uh, where your struggles and your difficulties can uh, be met, uh, first and foremost, by people who will love you in the place where you are in the poverty and the neighborhoods that we inhabit. Uh, is it is it the result of predatory lending? Is it the result of a da- of a, a downturn in the economy? Uh, is it the result of there not being enough jobs that are available for people to be owned or to be taken care of? And then we begin to analyze as the church, well, how can we begin to meet these needs? Because there are some immediate needs: food, clothing, shelter. These are immediate needs, and these are things that the church can pretty easily uh, take care of. You, know, my little my little church, man, we run about a hundred folks. Uh, we have, we run a food pantry that does delivery. We're the only food pantry in Canadian County that actually does delivery. Uh, and we're feeding probably 15 to 20 families a month just out of our little deal. And when I say feeding, I mean, we're talking two or three bags of groceries taken to somebody's doorstep. And I think a lot of times you have to help people take care of their immediate to be able to see the deeper issue. And the deeper issue, um, is, you know, as far as how each church addresses that is going to be different in areas where there are jobs that are available, but people don't have the skill set, maybe then a church begins to say, okay, there's jobs here. If the if a lot of these folks that we're ministering to were trained, then maybe we could they could begin to take some of these entry level jobs that would help improve their standard of living. Let's begin a training program inside of our church. Let's partner with a Votech. Let's the issue in your in your neighborhood is a language barrier then let's begin to, to figure out how we can help people to understand uh, the English language better so they can better enter the job market and have more of an opportunity. Uh, and then I think further kind of going along with that is as we do those things, we can't be talking badly or poorly about people who are on government benefits, who are receiving help uh, through, through food stamps or through TANF, which is temporary aid for needy families, or who are on sooner care here in Oklahoma, which is kind of our Medicare for, you know, uh, for our state state insurance for people who do not have insurance. Uh, instead of talking poorly about those folks, encourage those people who are on those programs. Hey, you're only on here for a season. We're going to work with you and help you where you can earn and take care of your own money. And restoring some pride and dignity to people who are in poverty. Um, and beginning to do that by teaching that from our pulpit, be relying on 
government to take care of people who are in need. We should be doing it. That is the calling first and foremost of the church. And the government comes alongside us to do that when the church is overwhelmed by the need. Uh, and instead, it's the reverse now. Now it's, you know, well, that's the government's job. And we just want to complain about how they do it and how they get it done. Um, we can't. We can't continue to do that. We have to shoulder the burden that God has given us. You know, when Jesus talks in the Gospel of Matthew about the sheep and the goats, he doesn't say that that's just people who are Christians. He says that's ultimately all people. And I was reading in, a, in Keller in one of prison that he was talking about people who are in that situation, but ultimately he's talking about himself on the cross and about how Jesus becomes the, even that person for us, for our salvation. And so it seems to me that if we follow a homeless, poor, crucified, imprisoned Jesus, and that's who our Savior is, that why in the world would we look at somebody who's in a similar situation now and not think that he wasn't talking about us ministering to that person and doing everything we can inside of our church, not to, you know, to quote Chandler, to send kids to double-decker basketball courts and trips to outer space, but it's been to- No, that's, that's a spot on. And, I, and what, I, what I like is, is, is not only are you speaking to us from within kind of an organization whose aim and goal is as a nonprofit to help feed America, and particularly here in Oklahoma, those who have need. But you speak to this from the perspective of a, of a pastor, of a minister who has a long history of, of really having a, a passion. So I think it'd be good if we closed with the story you told me, how you really got started, what really ignited that. Because there's always seems to be, when someone captures a vision, there always seems to be a moment where whether whether it's an idealism that experiences a trauma or it's a moment of startling reality, something generally happens to say, I'm going to, something lit a fire, something, something motivated. So tell, tell that story. Yeah. And I'll, I'll go back even a little bit further than I was going earlier. Cause I, I want to give some credit to where credit is due. I, uh, when I was in student ministry at first Baptist church in Bethany, uh, we really wanted to involve our students doing more uh, out in the field type mission trips. And uh, my buddy, uh, Steve Bullard, one of my accountability partners, one of my best friends in the whole world, told me about this place in San Antonio, Texas called Alamo City Christian Fellowship. And he said, man, you know, Abs, you got to go down there. You got to you got to meet these guys. You would love this dude named Jim O'Neill, who's our missions pastor down there. Uh, so I get on the phone with Jim. And uh, he says, yeah, we'd love to have your group come down, but we have a requirement. So I convinced my pastor to let me fly down to San Antonio, spend three days on the church's dime uh, with Jim and with his crew. And, man, it was, it was the most eye-opening experience. This church was literally involved in at least a dozen different benevolence ministries in San Antonio. Uh, they had a food pantry. They had a, mo- they had a ministry that took food to homeless camps. They partnered with multiple different ecumenical organizations across the city of San Antonio. They were in- embedded with the poor. And the poor came to this church. And the, the Sunday I was there, man, we're in church. I'm there worshiping with them, and we get done. And there's this this group of girls that has accepted Christ, and they their three of these girls are strippers from one of the strip clubs that have come in. And uh, they said, "Please bring your group." 
So start taking groups down there. Well, after taking them down there a couple of times, uh, there was this amazing lady uh, in my church. Her her husband, uh, Larry, uh, it remains to this day one of my greatest mentors. Uh, and Cynthia, I mean, Cynthia and Larry are like adopted mom and dad uh, to me and my wife. They, we came up here, all of our families in Texas, they took us in. They adopted us as part of their family. They're, they're just amazingly amazing people, man. And uh, Cynthia was just so broken by the stories we were telling her. And she was just like, I've always had this heart for homeless people, but I'm scared to go do anything. And I was like, man, Cynthia, well, I'll go with you. So we started making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and grabbing up blankets and driving down to downtown. Found, we gave them, we gave them uh, a pair of gloves or a sock hat or a blanket and a sandwich and uh, prayed with them and asked if there's anything else we could do for them. Uh, and that was the catalyst for what ultimately is now called Sidewalk Outreach Ministries, which is what your church, I believe, is a part of. Uh, and it's changed ownership a couple different times, and it's morphed. It, it's very different now than what it was. But it really just started because we had met poverty up close. And, man, when you start hearing those stories, uh, we see reasons why people wind up on the street or wound up, you know, in, in a lot of, you know, a lot of people who are in poverty, they're not on the street. They have a house to live in, but they're just, they're barely getting by. Uh, when you start hearing those stories and you're a follower of Jesus, you can't help but be broken. Uh, well, if that's the case and I've experienced the grace of Jesus, how can I not extend grace and have mercy on somebody who's a, in a situation that I myself could very well have been in, given a different set of circumstances? Yeah, absolutely. And that that is a great way uh, hopefully, to conclude uh, our time such that maybe that last story will have that same effect, that now when someone goes out, they will actually be aware and alert to their surroundings, take note of their context, both in their church, where they work, and they'll they'll see some things that uh, might now call to mind your last line, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. So that, Ryan, I want to say thank you for being on with me. Thanks for taking time out of your day. Uh, always uh, appreciate what you do. And uh, the uh, occasions we get to interact, and maybe, maybe we'll just have to intentionally uh, create some more of those along the way. Sounds good, my brother. Thanks for the opportunity. Todd. appreciate it, man. All right, man. Have a good day. You the same, brother. Talk to you later. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember to share the podcast. Subscribe on Stitcher. Subscribe on iTunes. And if these podcasts are helpful to you, remember to share with your friends.